Twelve days before Christmas, President Biden signed into law the Respect for Marriage Act, requiring all U.S. states and territories to recognize same-sex and interracial civil marriages. But that isn't all the new law does. It also fortifies religious liberty protections. As today's guests describe, it's perhaps because the Respect for Marriage Act does both things that it garnered 61 votes in the U.S. Senate and 258 votes in the House. Twelve Republican senators and 39 House Republicans went for a law that repeals the Defense of Marriage Act, the 1996 bill signed into law by President Clinton, banning federal recognition of same-sex marriage and defining marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Why now? Well, partly it's public opinion. Gallup surveys tell us that in 1996, public support for same-sex marriage in America was 26%. Today, it's 72%. Politics is downstream from culture. But there's a bit more to it, a faith angle, if you will. The new 910-word law federally enshrines gay marriage and specifies clear religious freedom provisions for faith-based groups. Quote, Nothing in this act shall be construed to diminish or abrogate a religious liberty or conscience protection otherwise available under the Constitution. These include nonprofit religious organizations, faith-based social agencies, religious educational institutions, non-denominal agencies, churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, and other congregations which shall not be required to provide services, accommodations, advantages, or other privileges for the solemnization or celebration of a marriage. Same-sex marriages will be honored and protected from state to state, as faith-based groups can freely live out their own faith convictions, which include teaching their youth in accordance with deep convictions about traditional expressions of marriage and expressing their constitutionally protected religious liberty without fear of lawsuit or civil claim. So what does this new law pretend for the future? Today, we're privileged to host Tim Schultz, president of the First Amendment Partnership, a D.C. advocacy organization that's worked for the last decade to advance religious freedom policy in state legislatures. For the last several years in D.C., Tim's worked closely with leaders of diverse religious minority organizations and national gay rights lobby organizations to help foster the conditions needed to make this bill and its commitment to Christian pluralism possible. Joining Tim is the four-year president of Christianity Today, Tim Dalrymple, an entrepreneurial leader and thoughtful social critic who holds advanced degrees from Stanford, Princeton, and Harvard. If you're unfamiliar with his magazine, CT was founded in 1956 by Billy Graham, and today it has four and a half million unique readers each month. So when on November 17th, 12 days prior to the initial House vote, Dalrymple's team ran a positive article from law professor Carl Esbeck entitled Everything You Need to Know About the Respect for Marriage Act. That sole piece about the bill may have signaled to some evangelical readers the safety and legitimacy of this compromise. This is a really thoughtful conversation between a D.C. practitioner lobbyist and a Midwest Magazine CEO who knows American evangelicalism about as well as anyone in the country. Enjoy the conversation. In order to get some of the background narrative on record here before we jump into the 
all the various issues that it raises. I wondered if you would speak about two recent inflection points, because the Respect for Marriage Act was actually, it has a long history. I believe it was first introduced, and obviously it's probably changed forms over time, but in 2009 by Gerald Nadler, and it's been reintroduced in subsequent sessions with Nadler in the House and Feinstein in the Senate. And then after the Obergefell ruling, which effectively established a right for same-sex couples to marry, that was in 2015, then it, it kind of fell off the radar screen for a little while. But there was something this year that caused this to come back to the fore, to become more relevant again, to move back to the front of the stovetops, as it were. That's one inflection point I'd love to hear you explain. And then a second one is there came a certain point when, from what I understand, a number of Christian organizations concluded this is likely to pass with or without us, and we need to get involved in order to make sure that there are sufficient protections for religious liberty. So could you talk about those two inflection points, and maybe that'll help us get some of the story. Yeah. So the first inflection point is that this has been sort of floating around as legislation for over a decade, but not in any serious way that was likely to pass. And then it got it got revivified after the Dobbs decision over the summer when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But then Justice Clarence Thomas, as he often does, issued a concurrence in which he said we ought to reconsider many of our other precedents, including the Obergefell decision. So Gerald Nadler had a primary this year that he was very much trying to win, and this was a great opportunity for him to dust off the Respect for Marriage Act, and it then passed the House of Representatives to many surprise with 47 Republican votes this summer. That's a lot on a cultural issue like this where there's not very much bipartisanship in Washington at all anymore. So that was inflection point one. Inflection point two is once it came to the Senate, it became clear that there were a number of Republican senators who also wanted to vote for it like their House counterparts. But because they had been speaking for many years to the religious groups that I primarily work with, and that's a list that includes evangelicals but also includes groups like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Orthodox Jews, the Orthodox Union, groups like the AND Campaign, a great Christian civic organization, and others – They wanted to speak with us about adding religious liberty provisions to the bill, which were not included in the House version. So in the end, those religious liberty provisions went in. A number of really well-known legal scholars, First Amendment scholars, including Professor Doug Laycock, most famously, said these are really good provisions. This bill will on net be good for religious liberty in its current form. And then it passed. And the reason it passed, I think, is because – A number of those Republican senators who were the decisive votes, we have to have 60 votes to pass anything in the Senate, they thought that the religious provisions were were meaningful and worth passing. And and that's why we have, for the first time since 2000, religious liberty protections enacted by the Congress. We have, for the first time since 2010, a gay rights bill enacted by the Congress. And we have a rare... United States Senate passage and and ultimate White House signing of a bill that is a kind of culture war-ish type bill that actually got all the way over the finish line, but wouldn't have done so without people who believe in pluralism. Hmm. 
And as Josh mentioned, I serve a ministry called Christianity Today, and we represent a, a fairly broad spectrum of, of Christians, but many are what we would consider men and women of evangelical faith. And within that community, there have been a range of responses, and then maybe we'll discuss these more as time goes on. But what do you say to those who feel, all right, maybe it had 57, 58 votes in the Senate prior to the addition of those religious liberty protections. And by having Christian groups step in and provide those religious liberty protections, it gave cover to those who were wavering and might not have supported it without it. But because it did have that and had the sort of imprimatur from certain Christian organizations, it allowed for that extra four votes for cloture, three votes for passage that really got this over the hump. And so they're upset. They're upset with Christians and individuals and Christian organizations who, in their view, kind of helped it get the final votes that it needed for passage. Yeah, I mean, I think it's this is a much longer conversation that goes to really the question of how we engage these issues in a world in which a theologically conservative Christians or people who hold theologically conservative views on sexuality are a cultural minority. So that's a much longer conversation to unpack. But I would say in this particular instance, we were able to pass religious freedom protections that we had been trying to pass in the Congress for seven years since the Obergefell decision. And those are religious protections that are meaningfully now part of law that are going to play a huge role in the protection of religious organizations that we hold dear for the next several decades. The other thing I would say is we got very important language that the Obergefell opinion had mentioned, but that I think had largely been culturally discarded, that people who hold truth traditional views about sexuality hold them for good, decent religious and philosophical premises. And then essentially by implication, they are not the same as those who hold to what we might call traditional views of interracial marriage, right? That those are not the same thing. That is something that was pointed out just today uh, by my friend Justin Gibney of the Ann campaign. He talked about how it's so important in the cultural and legal conversation that those things be seen rightly as different. And we now have not just dicta from the Supreme Court to that effect, we also have the United States Congress, the entire gay rights movement, President Joe Biden standing beside that proposition. So we just thought those things were in the end worth it. And again, it's it's a much longer conversation of whether you want to enter into a kind of permanent blocking mode or if you want to be constructively engaging to try to find solutions that are sort of broadly acceptable to the middle portion of Americans. And Tim, remind us, how frequently is this kind of legislation passed? I mean, we might remember the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. We might think of certain truly bipartisan pieces of legislation that are passed. It's not that common. How common is it? I mean, we remember state legislation like yeah. the Utah Compromise. But how common is it for the federal government to weigh on these kinds of issues? It's extremely rare. So as I said, I mean, it's been since the year 2000, a bill called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act that any kind of bipartisan religious freedom legislation has passed the Congress. It's been since 2010 with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell that any sort of bipartisan gay rights legislation has passed the Congress. And if you just sort of look at what does Congress actually pass these days, 
it's usually stuff that doesn't have to go through the 60 vote process. It's stuff that can be passed through what's called budget reconciliation, where you only need 50 votes. So you get like the infrastructure bill. There was a gun related bill after the latest string of mass shootings. But in general, these days, passing bipartisan legislation on culture war related issues, man, it just doesn't happen very often. So that's part of the reason I think this is such a watershed. So why was it the case that the National Association of Evangelicals and the CCCU and maybe CT running a piece by Carl Esbeck, why did these groups that are evangelical that historically have a bent toward traditional marriage choose to get involved, as Tim was raising earlier? One thing that you should know is that in all of the letters that were issued, which are publicly available, these are groups who reaffirmed their stance on their understanding of, of marriage and sexuality. I think that the reason they've gotten involved, if they've seen that if they're not part of these conversations, if they're just part of what I'd call the no caucus, then their views aren't taken seriously by the people who are actually making decisions. And many times, again, if you assume that the traditional view of sexuality is now a cultural minority position, and it just is, then that means that you're going to have to make the case for religious freedom to people who don't share your view of sexuality and to institutions who don't either. And that includes the United States Congress, right? And so I think that they've just taken a view. We have to engage. We have to be good faith actors. We can't just be part of a permanent no caucus on these things. And I think that that's a gross simplification, but I think that's kind of the thread that animates both evangelical organizations that might sort of be in what we call the Christianity Today universe. But it's, it's actually not a coincidence that the three groups that were sort of to the first at the table on this idea are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Orthodox Jews, and Seventh-day Adventists. Now, what do they have in common? Not theology, really. But they do have in common, deep in their DNA, as an idea they are a cultural minority. And so to the degree that you see your vision of Christianity to be a cultural minority, the more you're going to gravitate to approaches that are shall we say, pluralistic like this one. Yeah, I think that's a great observation, Tim Schultz. And all three have experienced persecution and have that very much in their collective memory. And this is something where I think this speaks to the reason why I feel like the evangelical community is divided on this issue, that there are places within the United States where the evangelical church continues to have a fair amount of cultural and political power. And there are places where, you know, I grew up in California, and there was a keen awareness that we were very much a minority. And there was simply no expectation that the government would represent kind of my ethical and theological views. But I've also lived in places like Atlanta, Georgia, where that was, where it was the opposite. And you would go to a movie theater, and you would see advertisements for politicians who were boasting of their conservative Christian credentials. And that, that was not what I had experienced in California or New Jersey or Boston, the prior places that I had lived. And a lot of the objection that I see coming to the Respect for Marriage Act is coming out of places that there is some amount of cultural hegemony, or maybe it's beginning to slip, but people are fighting very hard to maintain that kind of influence and, and really have a strong belief that the laws of the land should reflect the truths of God, right? And, and that's what's ultimately most beneficial for people, that Christians should acquire power and use it for the benefit of all by enshrining Christian views into law. 
And then there are others who have been within the cultural minority for quite some time, and they would like very much to be free to pursue their faith, but they certainly don't expect the canons of the state to enforce their moral or theological views on other people. And that does seem to be one of the significant dividing lines when it comes to the response to the Respect for Marriage Act. I agree with that. No doubt about it. How does the tone you're describing set free writing on a number of cultural topics for your journalists? Yeah, well, so just to be clear, I'm, I'm speaking in the voice of a private citizen here. I'm not kind of speaking institutionally on behalf of CT. CT's not taken an editorial position on the Respect for Marriage Act, although we did publish a piece from Carl Esbeck, who is one of the attorneys involved in the negotiations over the religious liberty protections. And we view ourselves as a platform for reasonable conversation. And so we would publish a variety of viewpoints on this issue. And we are closely connected to a number of other organizations that would have differing viewpoints, right? They, they might not celebrate the bill as a whole, but they celebrate the inclusion of the religious liberty protections. And then there are others who can celebrate the bill as a whole because they think this is a reasonable compromise that protects the rights of all. It is certainly true what you're saying, both you, Josh, and Tim, that it was once upon a time possible for us to say there was a cultural consensus on what marriage means. It is no longer possible to say that. And in a lot of ways, I view the Respect for Marriage Act not so much as picking a side, so much as it is making space for, for multiple views of marriage. And so I have to ask myself, all right, I hold my views of marriage for fundamentally theological reasons. And I am somebody who holds to a traditional view of marriage and believe that human beings flourish best when marriage is kind of in a relationship between men and women. So I believe that, but am I going to expect the state to kind of take my side on that issue? There are all sorts of things Christians believe that we don't expect the state to take our side, right? There are no laws against using the name of the Lord in vain. There are no laws against cursing. There are no laws against cohabitation or premarital sex. You know, there may be some things that are still on the books from ages and ages ago, but nothing that we're really advocating for these days, right? And so how do you make a decision about when you advocate for the law to enshrine your views and when do you expect the law to permit a breadth of opinions and a breadth of ways of living on these topics? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Tim Schultz. I do. I mean, part of the issue is that there are different theopolitical presuppositions underlying these debates. Normally, people haven't thought deeply about what their views on those theopolitical presuppositions are. So there's this famous book by Richard Niebuhr, Protestant sort of public theologian in 1951. And I recently watched a lecture that the law professor uh, Michael McConnell gave about those categories that Niebuhr had about Christ and culture. How does Christ relate to culture? And I think that those categories may need to be updated a little bit, but I do think that there are different views from people who say, look, our Christian faith shouldn't even inform how power is used in the public square at all, right? A kind of quietism. But then there's others who would say we ought to really have the public square perfectly reflect Christian moral truths. And then there's a lot of space in between. So I actually think we need a lot more public theology. This is why I'm really glad that Russell Moore is working at Christianity Today now, because we need a lot more thinking about how Christianity and Christian ethics relate to public theology. We need a lot more of it. And I think that 
a lot of times some of the arguments that Christians have is because they don't have really well thought out fundamentals of their political theology. And so they argue with each other and don't realize that they're really arguing past each other because they have different suppositions about political theology. You know, and whether you you use the demography numbers about the country, and I feel like a nerd, I bring them up all the time, but you know, it's like still just within the last seven years, 70.6% of people in the United States called themselves Christian. Maybe a quarter or so are evangelical. Maybe 21% are Catholic. Maybe now it's down to 14% are mainline Protestant. 10, 11% are, are African-American Christian. You have the numbers that Pew's just done on Mormons, on Jews. We're a very religious country still. And so many of us don't take the step, right, to translate those moral convictions, those religious cultural convictions that are in our own homes and in our own congregations to what it means for the body politic, which is a different thing, which is compromise, which is letting, as the passage talks about, the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike, letting the weak grow up alongside the tares and making a safer, better world for people to choose what is true. Why is that? Why are we struggling as much as we do with having people who come from religious backgrounds get to Washington and understand politics to properly be about compromise, not icky, but properly be about compromise. And was this bill an example of compromise? Well, the passage of this bill is definitely an example of compromise. And I wouldn't say that I necessarily favor compromise for compromise's sake, right? Not all compromises are good. I can think of a lot of compromises, including those that allowed slavery to continue to flourish in the United States as immoral compromises that we, we should have rejected. However, having said that, I think that these days, if you are a supporter of religious freedom, and that's my day job, that's all I do, you have to, in my opinion, recognize that the religious freedom that we are trying to protect is frequently being exercised by those that our culture views as it, at a minimum as weird, right? And so that means we have to engage those who don't share our views on salvation, on sexuality, et cetera, and frankly, make some friends with people who are not our co-religionists. That's just, I think, a practical view of our cultural moment. Now, there are others who disagree. We can unpack that, who think that we ought to just be on what I'd call a war footing all the time and just kind of be at kind of permanent war with the organs of our culture that sort of disagree with, with Christian social ethics. I think that has some pretty significant costs. I've seen what those look like pretty up close. But I think that compromise isn't always good, but I think a posture of engagement, at least for those of us in this moment, is a wise one. Yeah, I would agree. You were talking earlier, Josh, about you asked how frequently these sorts of pieces of legislation are passed. And of course, Tim pointed out that they're very rarely passed on these kinds of issues. And it does seem to be kind of this constant total culture war, the hyper-politicization of, of our society. And it's it's almost cliche to talk about now, and yet it is still so true. There are tremendous amounts of money to be made, tremendous amounts of power to be gained by appealing to the more the more hyperbolic, the more extreme sides within the left and the right. And so this very much applies on both sides of the spectrum. But media organizations, it is the clearest route to revenue and growth to pick an extreme position and to be a voice of hyperbole, a voice of anger, a voice of scorn toward the other, that is a terrific way to make your career, right? If that's your only interest, it's an amazing way to do so. And we also have some organizations that are kind of 
professional culture war organizations that that have grown up over the years. And some of the ones that I've seen that have been the most upset about the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, it is emanating from these what have become institutions of culture war that rely for their fundraising, rely for their their institutional existence on a certain amount of apoplexy and kind of sky is falling sort of terminology and rely on anger against the other as well. And and unfortunately, it, it does feel like a lot of Christian audiences have been captured by those voices as well. I agree with what you said. The one thing I would sort of revise and extend in what you said is I believe that the groups that oppose this bill definitely have sort of fundraising imperatives. They've kind of built up a culture of opposition. and But I also think that they sincerely believe that bills like this are a disaster. I even believe they sincerely, subjectively believe that the religious liberty provisions are weak and, and won't hold up at all either. What I would add, though, is that I think the reason that they're wrong is that they have for years been only talking to each other about these things, that there is a kind of culture, an insular culture of speaking to their own and not speaking to people outside the tribe. And I think that when you when you have a kind of tribal mentality, it makes you sometimes not see the whole picture very well. And so that's why I've sort of asked, and I, I posted something yesterday on Twitter about this. I said, this is really a wisdom debate. And I think we'll, we'll have really good evidence in about a year of who was right. So I think we really ought to pause and come back and have some Diet Coke and come back a year from now and sort of say, okay, we had a wisdom debate here among theologically Orthodox Christians. Now, who was right? We'll know in a year. But let's, let's have a little bit of a ceasefire and then come back and have an honest conversation about who was right. Do we have clues about that from Obergefell? Well, I'd, I'd say the clues that we have are more from the Utah Compromise. Mm-hmm. I mean, Utah passed a law that's in this model, this pluralism, both and model in 2015. And it was pilloried by the very same folks who are pillaring the Respect for Marriage Act. They said it would be a disaster. And we have almost eight years of evidence now that it was actually quite a success. Now, that doesn't mean they're wrong this time. It just means that the similar sky is falling rhetoric did happen around the Utah law, and it did not prove to be true. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear that I certainly agree that there are people of good faith and deep conviction on both sides of this issue. And, you know, when I talk about some of those culture war institutions, a lot of those are my friends, and they are very sincerely motivated by concern for fidelity to scripture, fidelity to the Christian tradition and for the common good, right? They genuinely believe that developing laws that are not based on the truth lead to less flourishing, lead to a less functional society. And I too would love for laws to reflect what I believe to be the truth. And I I think that would be in, in everybody's interest. I think that I've come to accept that we live in a society where the views of what the truth are, are varied and deeply held by all, and we need to find ways of making accommodations for one another within that society. But, so while I think there are genuine and deeply held convictions on both sides of the issue, I don't think we should ignore the the incentive structures that if it is the case that the clearest route to the acquisition of political power, cultural power, economic power, if all of that draws people toward the extremes, for one thing, it might not draw the best people, but for another thing, Over the course of time, yes, your motives are going to grow complicated. 
you are motivated by deeply held belief, and it is also very much in your interest to continue pressing in kind of a more extreme direction. And that's that's something that I think we as Christians or Christians in my community need to think deeply about is how do we shift some of those incentive structures so that people who have more moderate approaches or or who are willing to deal with the complexities of living in a space where compromise is necessary, where that actually, those people are elevated and given more influence over time. Completely agree. And the only thing I would add to that is, I mean, having seen sort of these institutional structures up close since I've been working on these issues for about a decade, I will say that if you if your organization is formed to be a fighting organization, if that's sort of your posture, then the people who come to work for you are going to be a self-selecting bunch of folks who generally lean toward being pugilistic, enjoying the fight, right? They tend to be more black and white thinkers. And so if that's the kind of people that generally work for those organizations, that's going to reflect your organization's posture in the public square. And then that is going to be attributed to many Christians who don't necessarily share that view of engagement because those will be the loudest voices because they really believe what they're saying and they're going to be loud in saying it. And something you alluded to earlier, Josh. So we at Christianity Today are largely finding that this vision of faith as culture war pugilism <laughs> is not resonating with younger generations, right? And if you were to go to you know churches across the country, you wouldn't necessarily find a view of Christianity as culture war pugilism. However, it is a vision of Christian life that is given a particular spotlight because of the prominence of these issues, the prominence of a lot of individuals who are engaged in culture war battles. And it does kind of take an outsized role, I think, in people's imagination, young people's imagination, that, gosh, if, if this is what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ in our time, if this is what it looks like to be a part of the church, then I, I don't really have any interest in that. And so we know that there has been extraordinary attrition, generation by generation, from the church. We know that many of those who are leaving provide the reasons for their departure as having to do with hypocrisy and intolerance and the hyper-politicization of the church. Those aren't the only reasons, but those are frequently cited reasons. And so I do think we also need to consider the impact of this kind of constant total culture war mentality on younger generations and the kind of witness that we have to them. And and are we creating a, a vision of Christian life that reflects the life of Jesus Christ, most importantly, and that resonates with the deepest needs of the soul. There is a version of this law now that says, look, at the end of the day, though, this was a gain for the gay rights community because they got marriage enshrined into federal law. Even if it's just perpetuating what's already part of the Burgerfell, it's fixed now. And it's a compromise for the, the, the religious freedom side because at the end of the day, yeah, they've got certain religious liberties baked into the law, some provisions Maybe the foster care and adoption organizations are going to be able to get through continuing their faith-based identity. But at the end of the day, if I step back and I look at the last 20 years or 30 years, I see that the movement is mostly in one direction. And I'm scared about that for what it means for the future. I mean, again, with the law itself, Tim Schultz, how's that come together? Well, I think it was a, a gain and a compromise for gay rights advocates. I mean, I have told reliably by some friends that work within the sort of more institutional religious right, that part of the reason why they were somewhat late to activate on this is because as soon as they heard that Republicans were talking about religious freedom provisions that were meaningful, they assumed that progressives would never go for that. Mm -hmm. They assumed that gay rights organizations would never go for that. And so they just thought, 
we can all go home now because they're never going to go for that. So I think that it has come as a great surprise to many that groups like the Human Rights Campaign, that Joe Biden signed a bill yesterday that includes religious provisions that have not been ever enacted into federal law in Republican Congresses. They've been sought, but they've never passed. And they are, in the words of Professor Doug Laycock, the most significant religious protections enacted since the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's a pretty big deal. So I think it is a gain for gay rights folks because there were 5,000 people at the White House yesterday celebrating this bill. But on the other hand, there were substantial compromises that they had to make too. And I think that what this establishes is if gay rights wants to go any place further, at least as a political matter, not necessarily culturally, but politically, it does have to go through the serious and sober faith communities who have a view of these things that is both and as opposed to pure oppositionalism. And in your view, does this piece of legislation capture sort of the best of fairness for all and the, the work that you guys have been doing for years, several years? With the, with the, the legal stakes of this are smaller because okay. that is about comprehensive non-discrimination legislation. So there's a lot more legal tentacles in this. But I would say this is a political first cousin to fairness for all. And it shows, again, to many people's surprise that there is a kind of middle ground to be had. This isn't just in a quote unquote quirky state like Utah, which people can write off because of its particular religious identity. This is something that passed the United States Congress that every Democrat in the United States Congress and Joe Biden supported. And that includes robust religious protections that the leading religious liberty scholars in the country say are really meaningful. And by the way, you've mentioned the article by Carl Esbeck. I'm a big fan of Carl Esbeck. He is a very theologically and politically conservative law professor. He's been teaching on these issues for decades. And he also believes, as he wrote in CT, that these are meaningful gains for religious liberty. And I think he's right. Well, Tim, just to get into a little bit of how elites thinking has played into this story, especially in the evangelical world, but but elsewhere as well. I happen to know you and that you went to Stanford University and you went to Harvard. You got a PhD there and you've done a lot of things, started that's a bunch of successful businesses. That's right. That's right. What about that? Is it is for those who are part of the parish and not elites, is there something concerning about David French and Walter Kim and these guys who are uber educated being thought leaders in all of this? Or how do you see the role of evangelical elite versus the mainstream in the work of your communication and thinking about these things from, from CT? Yeah, I don't really view this as a dividing line between elites and non-elites. And a lot of the people who are levying these criticisms against evangelical elites are themselves tenured faculty members who have chairs at their own institutions. They are elites as well by any fair description in my view. You know, I wrote something back in November of 2020, immediately prior to that election, that was trying to disentangle why is it that evangelicals were divided around Trump and the Trump movement. And I ended up describing it in terms of the church remnant and the church regnant. And this, this does echo, and maybe it informs some of the earlier comments that I made, that There are people who have spent most of their Christian and and adult lives in contexts where they neither possessed political power nor expected anybody else to possess political power, and where their vision of the kingdom of God was not at all about the acquisition and leveraging of of political power, but it was about emulating in many respects the self-sacrificial love, the powerlessness, the the care for the least and the lost 
that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's that was the vision that they, if the state simply left them alone and did not persecute them, that was enough. Because what we're really called to do is to, to live Christ-like lives, right? Now, there is a, a different view, and I refer to this as the church regnant, and that comes from the word for to reign or to hold power, right? There is a different view that the vision of the kingdom of God is one in which we occupy positions of enormous influence. And so sometimes, you know, one example of this would be Seven Mountains theology, that there are these high places of cultural influence, and politics and media and et cetera. And society as a whole is better off when Christians are in those places because they can then sow the values and the truths of the Christian tradition into the culture. And so that's a different vision of what the kingdom of God looks like, right? That it really requires us to be in these positions of influence. And so I think with good intentions, they pursue these positions of influence and want to use them in ways that benefit everybody. My concern about that, the church regnant, is that that is an entanglement of the gospel with political power that often ends up betraying both. Okay, I think it, it ends up complicating the witness and the true mission of the church. And on the other hand, I think it ends up distorting political power as well. So I don't personally view that as a, as a good way to go. That, I think, is a more fundamental division between the division than the division between elites and non-elites. And for me, so with this issue, there certainly has been a criticism of so-called elites for genuflecting to the left on this, of giving up the fight, abdicating the battle, right? So that's some of the language that I think you've seen from the far right on the issue, directed against me and against others. And I just think that it's perfectly possible for us to say, morally and theologically, here are my beliefs on marriage, you know, that, and sexuality, that I think sexuality is, should be reserved for the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That is my view. And I'm going to advocate for that view morally and theologically. And yet I can also countenance a legal structure that allows for multiple views on what marriage is. So morally, theologically, I'm going to continue to advocate for what I believe is the biblical view But I understand that I live in a pluralistic democracy where that is not always going to be enshrined into the the laws of the state. I agree with everything Tim just said. I also agree that the folks that are leveling the elite charge tend to themselves be people with big followings on Twitter, tenured positions on faculties and seminaries people who themselves have gone to fancy universities. I I only went to little old Kansas State University, so I'm (laughs) proud to come out as a non-elite here. But I find it to be ultimately a debate among people who do have influence. That sort of elite is used as a kind of shut down an argument. But I think, look, this is a debate among people who have influence. Let's just admit it. I have influence. They have influence. We're all trying to influence the debate and the sort of course of politics. And it just doesn't do any good. I think it just confuses more than it helps to be calling people elites all the time. We do have some journalists who listen to this podcast. And do you have thoughts, given your particular desks, which are unique, as to how journalists can cover religion better, more effectively? I mean, are there ways we can sort of not miss what's going on in particular denominations, pews, and tribes? I think religion coverage has gotten a lot better in the 10 years that I've been doing this, in no small part to the work of the Faith Angle Forum. But I also think that on questions like this, 
the religion angle or the faith angle does tend to get lost. I think it would be really useful to speak directly to the heads of these organizations, to people like Shirley Hoekstra, the head of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, or Justin Gibney, head of the Ann Campaign, or many of the other organizations about why they came out the way they did. I think it's also useful to speak to people who hold that this was a, a big mistake. People like Al Mohler, who, who has, as usual, kind of made his views known in, in a number of different uh, fora. But I, I still think it's important to talk to him. And I think to interrogate some of these underlying questions about theopolitical assumptions and what's your kind of underlying philosophy that Tim referred to, how Christ relates to culture, I know that that may seem a little too theological for a lot of the journalists that are listening here, but I still think getting into those deeper questions that are underneath these inter-Christian debates would be really useful for, for journalists to unpack. And sometimes they do, and I think it's really useful. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add is to recognize that these are often very deeply personal questions for a lot of people. So when it comes to something like the Respect for Marriage Act, of course, we are going to think about same-sex couples who wonder whether they're marriage could be rendered null by the overturning of Obergefell in the, in the way that Justice Thomas alluded to. Those are, those are very real anxieties. Those are this right, could this be taken away from me? What would then happen to my family? What would happen to my kids? So those are things that I think folks on, on the right who are in media need to be sensitive to and listen to. Those who are on the left on media need to recognize that there are just as deeply felt convictions and, and concerns on the other side. And these are parents who feel like they're living within a culture that is advancing a whole set of ideals that do not align with their, in many cases, most deeply held convictions. And they're, they're worried about their kids, and they're worried about the kind of culture that they're encountering at school, and the kind of culture they encounter in popular culture as well. And the ways in which that can draw their their children in particular into a lifestyle that they view as fundamentally destructive and potentially eternally destructive. And so that's a very, very real concern for a lot of people on these things when it comes to these kinds of issues. So it's easy for us to talk about these as matters of philosophy and matters of politics, but ultimately it does come down to very deep personal concerns that are often religious in nature. So that would be my encouragement. My last comment maybe would just be to agree that I, I think I started attending Faith Angle forums in about 2010, maybe 2011. And I think it's had an exceptional influence on media coverage over the course of that those years. And it started before I got engaged. But, but I have seen much more careful and nuanced treatments of the Faith Angle of many different stories. And so I appreciate the work that you do. Oh. I remember that article that Mike Cromer used to carry around in his briefcase of the shepherd, Tim, that you had written a decade or so ago, asking people for trying to throw in a couple coins in the cup. Hey, thanks, guys, both of you very much. Come on back to Faith Angle, Tim, and congratulations to the guy from Kansas State for getting this piece of legislation across the line. Thank you. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with leading scholars and public policy practitioners. Thanks for listening. <laughs>